Hey, welcome to the Comic Syllabus Podcast at the Multiversity Network of Podcasts, where we read widely and dig deep in the world of comics and graphic novels. Today, I'm excited to have on as a guest, Aliyah Perez, who is um, the president-elect of the American Library Association Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable. And um, she's here to talk with me about Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me by Mariko Tamaki and um, Rosemary Valero O'Connell, which came out this summer from First Second Books. And also to talk about her role as the (laughs) president-elect of the ALA Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable and about comics and graphic novels in libraries. Um, Aaliyah is a librarian. Um, She is um, very knowledgeable and enthusiastic and um, just insightful about uh, comics in libraries. So we have a great conversation talking about the role that comics and graphic novels play in literacy and in libraries, um, access and diversity and representation in comics. Um, And then we move on to talk about a book that we both really enjoyed this year, and I haven't gotten to put my enthusiasm down on it (laughs) on recorded podcasts, so excited to be on the record talking about Rosemary Valero O'Connell's stunning art and Mariko Tamaki's um, wonderful writing in Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, which is just a fantastic book. We had this conversation a couple weeks ago right after um, it won some awards and recognition, which we talk about in our chat. Um, a few things, if you are a comic syllabus listener, uh, you may want to check out uh, other podcasts at multiversitycomics.com, uh, including the uh, uh, friends at the DC3cast, and um, they're going to be watching The Watchmen, the new Watchmen HBO show, uh, which is pretty cool. I saw the first episode and kind of excited to, to talk about it and hear, hear them talk about it. Um, and you'll see a bunch of reviews and interviews and, um, you know, long form pieces, um, columns, stuff about comics, stuff about TV, stuff about all kinds of stuff, uh, including stuff that I have a chance to write. Uh, I got to do, um, some group reviews with Mark Tweedale and Nick Palmieri of the latest Avatar, the last Airbender comics series. That's, that was a lot of fun as well as to review a couple other graphic novels, um, and some interviews going on out there at the site. I'll link to some of that in the show notes. I'll also link to um, Aaliyah's work at the site. Uh, really excellent work. I, I reached out to her because I just so liked the stuff that she was writing about and the way she wrote about them. So we have a great conversation coming up. First uh, 40 minutes or so talking about libraries and then about um, Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. So here we go. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at multiversitycomics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. All right. Um, Aliyah, welcome to the Comic Syllabus. It's really fun to have you and, and to, to talk to you at last on, on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I've listened to some, some past episodes and thought they were really great. So this is a real honor. 
No, thanks. Thanks. It's, it's a real honor to have you here. And, you know, one reason I'm excited um, besides that, um, as you've written at Multiversity and I've just really enjoyed your reviews. In fact, sometimes it'll, it'll be like, yeah, I love it that someone wrote about that book. I really, you know, really wanted one of us to write about that book. And, uh, and you write about comics and graphic novels with um, such intelligence. And I think, um, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, lenses that I really, really appreciate. Um, so I'm excited to have you on, but then also knowing that you are a librarian and um, caring a whole lot as a literacy teacher um, and researcher about libraries and, and comics and graphic novels in libraries. Um, it's really fantastic to talk to you about that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I try when, when I'm looking for books to write about to make sure that I'm looking for books that have wide representation. So mm-hmm. there are are going to be books that are popular that are well known and I think I cover some of those but mm-hmm. really making sure that even within that there are characters that are you know not always white not always straight yeah um, it, it's harder to find characters with disabilities but really trying to, yeah. to get that gamut of the human experiences is, is pretty important to me yeah yeah and I, I mean imagine that you know for some folks that's a, a deeply personal. Um, I think for me in, in looking for people to identify with in the, in the literature and culture I consumed as a kid, that was really important. Um, but also when you are, um, a librarian, I imagine, you know, correct me here, um, that it's similar to how I felt as a teacher, which is that, you know, representation was not just about sort of like an abstract idea of diversity. It's like you have that kid walking in your classroom or in your library and you just really want for them to find something that is like, you know, is, is eye opening when they can see a reflection of themselves or um, a rendition of their lives or a way to help make sense of their world. Um, is that kind of the, the feeling that you get? Sometimes you get, you know, you have um, patrons and, and, and readers that you're really looking to serve. And that's why representation is so important. So a lot of libraries tend to not realize how diverse their communities are. And Mm. it's something that's getting better with time. Mm. But when you look at a lot of the statistics in libraries, and this tends to be true even in communities that are largely made up of marginalized and minority populations, the books that check out are still predominantly books that feature white characters. And so a lot of librarians tend to incorrectly assume that there's no need then for those other diverse. But then you see, I work in a children's department. Mm -hmm. You see the kids walk through the door who aren't just white, who Mm -hmm. do want to be able to see themselves in the Mm -hmm. the books that they read and the comics that they consume and they struggle. And there was a really great uh, study done by Dr. Sarah Park Dolan, uh, both in 2015 and last year in 2018, that mm-hmm. looked at the representation in titles uh, made for children, not mm-hmm. specific to graphic novels, but it gave this really uh, depressing breakdown yeah. of the representation that you find in children's literature, where you get a higher percentage going towards inanimate objects like crayons mm-hmm. or trucks right. uh, than you do then all groups. Right. <laughs> Of minority characters put together. Right, right. And even when you do get those characters, there's a warped representation because it's not all own voices. And so yeah. even when kids are picking up these books where they can kind of see themselves, right. um, there's appropriation happening or misrepresentation. And right. so, yes, it's incredibly important 
that kids start out being able to see themselves. This was certainly not the case when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm very interested in seeing be the case for kids who are coming of age now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I so appreciate that. Like, you know, we spend probably um, (laughs) at least two days a week in a library just for multiple reasons, but also because as, as a family, we're like total book addicts. You know, and for my my daughter, just kind of walking up and down the aisles of kids sections, I'm keenly aware, you know, of how much or how little she is seeing books that both like reflect her experiences as, you know, an Asian American girl um, and also represent the experiences of her classmates, you know, it's mm-hmm. almost all kids of color and, and, um, and, you know, um, it really is a, a profoundly important thing in, in thinking about how our children um, find literacy to be a means of connection and of, um, you know, understanding about the world. So thank you for your work. I love that that is, you know, your, your life mission. Tell us a little bit about where you work and, uh, you know, if, if you can share um, also about your role as um, your president-elect of the American Library Association's um, Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable. Um, how did how did you enter that and 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 uh, tell us a little bit about what that work is like? Yeah, sure. So I currently work as the head of kids library at the Elmhurst Public Library, which mm-hmm. is in the Chicago suburbs. Mm-hmm. So it's a very affluent library, which is very different from where I got started, which was in my hometown uh, library in Yuma, Arizona, which is mm-hmm. where Mexico, California, and Arizona all come to a point. Yeah. So that was majority minority people, Mm. um, very much leaning towards the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we did have uh, folks from Canada and from northern U.S. come. So it was a very diverse population. Mm. Uh, In Elmhurst, there is a move towards diversity in the community, Mm. but still very, very affluent, very white overall. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's a, a strange dichotomy to go from people who are in a library because it's a safe space Mm, mm. versus those who are in a library because they are looking for resources because they want their kids to push themselves in school. So Mm. two very different perspectives, um, the beginning of my career and where I currently am. Yeah. Mm. But I've been uh, a manager of kids departments now uh, for this is my fifth year that I've been doing that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of trying to coach uh, my staff towards better understanding of representation. It's actually a really big thing that I've been trying to do in in both of my management positions. Mm -hmm. Um, So now that I'm no longer a librarian who has to so much follow the orders of others, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to to pave my own way towards really getting people to understand um, the importance of of representation, again, across different Mm -hmm. marginalized groups. So Mm -hmm. that's really been the work I've been trying to do over the past few years, have Mm -hmm. presented a lot on that, or as much as I can, rather, at our state um, conference and trying to get into the national scene, but that's pretty Mm. difficult. Mm. Um, But I did manage to get in, as you mentioned, uh, into the national scene through the American Library Association's Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable. So that started out, uh, gosh, I think nine years ago as a member interest group. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. something that wasn't really given much 
much weight to mm. the, the ALA system. Mm. Um, it was essentially a club where people who mm. had an interest in, in graphic novels and comics mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. come together and, and, and talk about them and share experiences. But over the years, this core of really dedicated uh, librarians, of which I was not a part of, uh, to mm. be clear, <laughs> um, I came in very late in the game. Um, they they worked very hard and, and pushed very hard to to get more clout behind mm. this group and to do what hadn't been done in a very long time, which was to turn it from that member interest group into a roundtable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So after years of, of efforts, they were able to formally do that last mm. year. So 2018 mm-hmm. is when it finally moved from an interest group into a roundtable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we held elections in the spring of, of 2019. So <laughs> they kind of set out a, a call and yeah. asked if folks were interested in running for our board, if people wanted to be on our committees. Yeah. Um, and it was, again, really important to me to, to see representation yeah. within this roundtable. Uh, when you look to ALA, they do amazing work, but as with most of librarianship, um, mm. I, I think the ratios tend to lean towards that 87% white, uh, yeah. 13% other groups combined, right. uh, largely female, and um, just very, very stuck in that spot. Right, right, and, right. Mm. Yeah, so it's very important to me that um, we tried to have more voices mm-hmm. at, at that table. Mm. Um, because comics are so important. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I imagine that moving from that status of you know interest group to roundtable um, probably felt overdue, given the huge role that graphic novel um, areas have in libraries. I mean, I don't know. I'll go, again, probably very limited in to my perspective, but as I you know patronize the the um, wonderful libraries we have here in the Oakland area, San Leandro where I live, Hayward where I work. Um, front like the first thing that you see when you come into the library is the huge graphic novel shelves that are you know growing and as you were saying um you know i think in our cities libraries very much feel like a a a haven or a refuge for for folks looking for places to go or looking for resources to be able to you know think consume culture um even just to just to be in a, a safe kind of space um, access technology and so on. And I just see them, you know, walking in the library and the first thing they're doing is going right to the graphic novels shelves um, and and standing next to me there <laughs> looking at all the titles. So well, I'm really glad to hear that where mm. you are, that they're front and center because mm. it's actually not a wide experience that, mm. that mm. most people have in, mm-hmm. in libraries when it comes to graphic novels. And yeah. actually in most of the libraries I've either worked at or been to, mm-hmm. uh, they're still tucked away in the back. Yeah. Mm. And it's not like the milk method in a grocery store where you stick the really popular stuff in the back right. to, to buy stuff or check out stuff before. It's <laughs> right. that this collection tends to be seen by most administrations as uh, fluffy, right. as, as less important or, yeah. or less meaningful than right. literature. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm pretty lucky to be in a place like where I'm at <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. a little ahead of the curve, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And and it's so strange to me that this is still the case. I think every so often I'm taken aback by 
how acknowledged graphic novels are becoming in pop culture, Mm -hmm. but in libraries, we still strangely seem to be a bit behind the times. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been in libraries for 10 years now, um, almost 10 and a half at this point. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was around the time when you started to see most libraries start to to build these collections. So before Mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. if you had them, they were still in the 741s in Mm -hmm, mm nonfiction. They mm-hmm. weren't special collections that were pulled out separately for people to easily find. Yeah. And that tide did start to to turn, but you still see a lot of, of what I mentioned where, yeah, we pulled it out separately, but mm-hmm. we're still going to stick it in the back or mm-hmm. we're not going to, like we do with other materials, pull out the new titles so that mm-hmm. we're promoting these in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. in children's departments, you still hear a... Sad high, sadly high amount of of teachers and parents mm. saying, "I don't want my children reading these. Yep. I want them to grab a real book." Yes, yes. Oh, they, they they've come. It a long hurts way, my heart. I hear it all the time. A long way to go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, in that that sort of um, second tier status uh, among literacies, let's say that still exists among families and and indeed among librarians and educators. Um, is a is a barrier to overcome, no doubt. Um, I'm curious, yeah. and, and and I want to come back to that whole um, prospect of of comics and libraries. But I'm curious about your own road into um, reading comics and whether they played a certain role for you as a reader um, in your own in your own history in your own literacy. Yeah, so I actually feel like I came to to comics very late in the game. Um, mm-hmm. I you know, hear a lot from people who said, yeah, I got my first exposure from the the Sunday comics, mm-hmm. you know, the, the three or four panel uh, Calvin and Hobbes is really mm-hmm. formative for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find Calvin and Hobbes, but as a 20 something year old. Uh, mm. So while I did read um, every so often, I'd sneak a peek at Blondie or Garfield in the comics. They really mm. weren't a big thing for me as a child. I was mm-hmm. actually a very reluctant reader. Um, Love reading now, but I just never really felt like I could connect with with the characters who were in the the books that I was Mm -hmm. being exposed to. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had a a renaissance in my reading um, later in life. And Mm -hmm. part of that was being introduced to to graphic novels. So there was Fables Mm -hmm. by Bill Willingham. Mm -hmm. It was huge. There was Why the, uh, the Last Man. Yeah. And my friend actually suggested those to me. I was kind of stuck. I didn't know what to, to try next. Um, in just reading in general, I wasn't even thinking of graphic novels or, or comics. And mm-hmm. my friend said, well, try these. You know, yeah. I think yeah. you'd like them. And, and I was hooked. Um, as soon mm. as I read the first volumes of both of those, uh, it was really this insatiable need to, to keep finding. And my library mm. at the time, as I said, didn't really have a lot. It was a few things that were tucked away in the 741s, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to hang out at our very tiny underused uh, comic book store was something that became mm-hmm. a bigger part of my, my routine. So mm-hmm. um, it was really nice to have that. And 
and, and to know that if libraries aren't at that point yet, uh, that I still had a place to go. So mm. those, uh, yeah, those were my, my first forays into. And then mm. after I read those is when someone else told me, you should really look at Calvin and Hobbes. It, you know, <laughs> it, it looks like it's for kids, but there's so much mm-hmm. to, to uncover in those stories, no matter how old you are. And, mm. and I read them probably in, in a day, the whole collected volume i think it was three, awesome. uh, three books in that set yeah 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 the big orange ones right yes yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh that's so good i mean you know when you um love something and then you get to hear about somebody who hasn't yet gotten to experience it you know it's just mm-hmm. like this little thrill inside you to be like yeah you get to to, to open up that world no that's yeah. awesome and i'm really yeah. excited that i got to do that as an adult <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not that I wouldn't have appreciated it as a child, but mm-hmm. I, I think that there is so much meaning yeah. in those stories that yeah. I, I feel like I got a little bit more out of it. So that was really mm-hmm. as exciting. That's that's fantastic. I mean, I, and I was a comics reader as a kid. Um, and I think that the sense that comics sometimes have of not only being a sort of, you know, um, demoted to a second tier status, but also the gatekeepery feeling sometimes comics shops and, and the world of comics can have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a kid, libraries were my way to penetrate that. I don't think I, you know, I, I lived in the 740s, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and really it was like my mom dropping me off at the library with, you know, um, no babysitting alternatives. And I just spent hours in Calvin Hobbes and Garfield. And then, you know, reading these collections of really old comic strips, which were kind of my introduction to Americana and, and a sense of cultural history in America. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in some ways, um, in ways that were insufficient, my initial exposure through, I don't know, V for Vendetta or whatever into um, more subversive ideas, you know, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> which carried over into literature and so on. But like, I, I think I had that as a kid and I felt a need as a uh, leader in adolescence to just kind of shed all that because of all the associations that, you know, um, comics had with what we'd later call like, you know, just like a toxic kind of masculinity and, and, and violence and so on. And really returning to it as an adult, I just felt like there was these treasure troves that I had never opened up. And just, there was a thrill of like, like fables. I, I sort of missed fables until pretty late until like 10 volumes into it, which meant I had 10 volumes of it to, to explore and catch up with and stuff. So um, yeah, and comics have such a fascinating history. So I was lucky yeah. enough to, mm. when I was getting my MLS to become a, a, a full-fledged librarian, mm-hmm. um, one of my professors was Dr. Carol Tilley. Yeah. Mm. is just this amazing figurehead yes. in the comics studies world. And for me to, to be able to take a class from her mm. and learn the history of comics through her Mm-hmm. I, to me, that was well worth the price of admission. I would go to that school all over again just fantastic. to be able to learn from her because she is such a font of knowledge. She yes. is so willing to to communicate with students about this because of how important comics are to her. Yeah, and I think every time I use the term graphic novels, I think she uh, she dies <laughs> a little bit on the inside. Uh, <laughs> yes. But yeah, learning the history of, of comics from her was just, it was an experience that I wouldn't mm. trade for anything. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. That's reminding me of, you know, and, and I loved her work on on Wortham, just sort of a different perspective um, 
about Frederick Wortham and seduction of the innocent and and comics' place in the larger social landscape. It, mm-hmm. it, it it's making me think a little bit about um, a question I had for you, which is just as librarians confronting both the great potential of, I mean, I think um, trying to to make the most of the great potential of comics for readers of all ages um, and and the kind of goals that you have with with literacy, but also the status in many communities, uh, including, you know, a lot of communities of color of that sense of of the fear of comics Mm -hmm. being a a kind of, you know, like I'm trying to have my kid um, become quote unquote literate and all of the attachments of literacy and comics are not that for many of them. Like, how do you see um, the role of libraries in, in, I don't know, trying to overcome that or address that or, or, you know, understand that with families? Um, I wonder if that's something that you, you, and you, you know, your, your colleagues discuss or, or, or think about. Yeah, so that's been a huge point of conversation for years is mm-hmm. how do we start changing the opinions of the people who are gatekeeping children, mm-hmm. whether it's teachers, whether it's parents, or whether it's other librarians. That is mm-hmm. something that you run into where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when we as librarians are offering readers advisory where we're making suggestions to readers, yeah. folks often forget to mention other formats. So it's right. not just... Uh, graphic novels are not mentioning audiobooks for those who may have um, vision issues. So mm. it's really a, a matter of trying to educate the people who are looked to as as knowledgeable on what is best practices for for reading for children. So mm-hmm. um, that has been an issue. I think it's going to be an ongoing issue for years to come. Unfortunately, mm. it's something mm. that again I think we've made a lot of uh, inroads on, but. We do try to have a lot of communication, first and foremost, with teachers. Mm. Um, We feel like there is a lot of stock that parents give teachers because of of their traditional role in in education (laughs) and literacy. Yeah. And so we do try to um, put lists together where we include graphic novels. We try when we have interactions with teachers about projects that their students are doing, letting them know that you're actually seeing stronger vocabulary in Mm -hmm. most graphic novels than you are in prose novels. So that's not a reason to avoid assigning those. It's not lesser than. Um, And really letting them know that there is that stigma. So Mm -hmm. when most people think of of comics um, who are not already part of that community, Mm -hmm. they do think of of that Wortham kind of uh, environment where they Mm -hmm. think it's violence or where it is... Um, that that toxic masculinity where it's, you know, naked or near naked women mm-hmm. or, or things of that nature. Yeah. When graphic novels and comics, just like any other book, um, run the whole gamut of genres and yeah. run the whole gamut of, of complexity, you have everything imaginable in them to choose mm-hmm. from. And so it's not this one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Um they're made for girls. They're made for boys. Yeah. They're made for uh, those who don't identify as either. So <laughs> there's really no no need for educators and librarians to to hold that line so strongly mm. to to not recommend them for all capacities for 
reading for enjoyment for, mm-hmm. for assignments and all of that. So yeah, it, it's something that we, um, especially as part of the, the graphic novels and comics roundtable, uh, try to push at our different uh, conferences and conventions that we go to. There's almost always a panel that we try to present on how comics are real reading, how Mm -hmm. comics should be put into children's hands, Mm -hmm. how they are not dangerous. Uh, There's no, you know, hidden message. There's no agenda. (laughs) No, no, no more than any other form of literature. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes they're just good fun and sometimes they're really educational. Sometimes they're both. Yes. Uh, Yeah. And, and all of that's important. And we really need to be encouraging our children and our adults reading as much as possible. It it Mm -hmm. shouldn't matter Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. format it's in. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, and indeed without saying like comics are just a gateway to literacy, they are literacy. I I do think there's this permeability in my experience, like, you know, when you read, you know, um, something about, I'm, just hold, I'm holding something up for you to see, but that <laughs> podcast listeners, hello. <laughs> but, um, I'm holding up um, George Takai's They Called Us Enemy um, recently out from, from um, IDW. And, I, and you know, uh, I just think about so many topics I encountered mm-hmm. as, a, as a comic or a graphic novel that then I went to pursue reading in other formats and other media and stuff like that. And, um, and so I, I do think that there's something really... Um, powerful in what you're saying about um, just getting it in folks' hands. I just last week, I, I, I teach the, um, I teach the future English teachers at um, Berkeley's teacher education program. And just last week we did a book pass activity, you know, where you just have a pile of books and everybody gets one and you give them a limited amount of time and like, you know, begrudgingly they pass it on because you just got to keep it moving. And um, it was yeah. just a, <laughs> just a pile of, of comics. And I'm often trying to figure out how to articulate to other educators the value in, in the works and, and to, to make them think about using them in the classroom. And I find that most often what I just, all I need to do is just show up with a stack. Like just yesterday, I literally just showed up in a colleague's classroom who was saying like, my kids are really into graphic novels. Um, what, what do I do? And, and I didn't really need to convince. I just need to show up with a, my stack, you know, my, my giant pile of all that's out there. And as they just flip through it and they're just like, wow, like this is not what I, you know, right. And I think I that's the trick is there yeah. is this fear when they come in like that. That's exactly it. We have parents come up to us at work and say, my kid really loves these. Right. You know, what do I do? Where do I go from here? I don't know right. how to pick the next thing. And, right. and I think doing exactly what you did and, and showing them, look, this is what your children are loving about it. You mm. know, it's that interplay of this really fantastic art, which comes in so many varieties and yeah. you have this really uh, classically trained, very clean style. Yeah. And then you can go to the other end where it's, it's stick drawing from yeah, stick figures right, and, right. and both are so expressive and communicative, right, right. but you have that interplay where if you're just looking at the pictures, you're missing the words. And if you're just looking at the words, you're missing some contextual clues in the pictures. Yeah. So it's really yeah. engaging yes. multiple parts of, of their brains reading this and, and I think adults struggle with that and yeah. giving them some really fun examples. I mean, I think Hilo um, and Dogman just oh, yeah. into parents' hands. <laughs> yes. And they're able to do a quick read and go, oh, okay, I'm starting to see it now. I'm starting to get it. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that's the trick is, that's is getting them past that, that initial fear. And it, it yeah. is a fear. And I, I don't know quite where it comes from besides from mm. the Wortham uh, message mm-hmm. of, of the, the mid-century. But mm. I think once they move past that, it's usually pretty good sailing from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I find that resonate, you know, it resonates with adults for them to think a little bit about their own literacies and how multimodal their own literacies are. You know, mm-hmm. I'll say like, when you go to work, do you just read pure words? No, you're always reading all these different symbol systems, like on a website, you're, you know, the design makes an impact, you know, or, um, or they're reading different forms of media or video and, uh, uh, or things that are, um, animated. And just so that this has a form of reading that is a primer to the multimodality of literacy. I mean, even the act of driving, you have to know what the oh. symbols mean. And <laughs> yes. so we, I think as a society have been prepping yeah. ourselves for graphic novels and comics for a long time. It's, yeah. it's been there, it's built mm-hmm. in and it's a skill that we all have. It's just honing and understanding mm. that there's really no difference that mm. having that visual literacy really is just as important to how we live our lives. I mean, it's, mm. It's almost more important the more we move away from from print and away from writing and yeah. towards this truly world culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. Graphic novels are such a good primer for preparing people for yes. the bigger world. Yes, yes. So I'm really excited for us to, to get to the point in the future where we say, what took us so long yes. to get here? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like, why did we push against this for so long? So, oh. yeah. Aliyah, you are leading the way there. <laughs> I, I do have one more thought that I want to try out on you too um, before we get in and we're going to talk about Lord and keeps breaking up with me which I'm really excited about too which which is just that you know I, um, I think about it from a scholar named Deborah Brandt who talks about this idea of sponsors of literacy you know folks who sort of in some way are those gateways or gatekeepers into literacy and, and bring people into different forms of literacy. And as you said, the friend who handed you um, fables and why the last man, you know, and um, I, I think, uh, um, I think about how, about those people or institutions in my life and actually how often they were in a way subversive. And, you know, we, you know, you and I work in libraries and schools, which are small C conservative institutions with, often like quite radical members, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and there's always something uh, a little bit almost under the table about comics that I think the more we, you know, say, say, and, and, and show their value and legitimize them, I think the better, but I, I wonder if we're losing a little bit of that feeling that was kind of exciting where it's like, which I did honestly, as a teacher 20 years ago of like, I, this is our official canon in the, in the <laughs> curriculum this is the approved syllabus but yo check this out right here let me just like slip you this little thing you know and um and 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 i do think comics have a little bit of that and that's actually a very powerful uh especially for marginalized communities right a, a, a powerful f- impact is just this sense that you're reading something kind of underground um and and i don't know i, I don't know if there's any way that we can do both at the same time you know like um, well, I think the beauty, though, of of any medium is that you're always going to have that. So yeah. mm. with graphic novels, they're 
are always going to be ones that are part of the larger commercial sure. agenda and part of that push. Yes. But you're always going to have, I believe it was the 60s, the 70s, we had the comics revolution, so you yeah. know, my ex, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. that was pushing back against even the the two big uh, companies, you know, Marvel and DC back yeah. then. Yeah. So you're always going to have that group who doesn't want to be part of that commodification of storytelling that really mm. wants to keep that subversive storytelling going and, and make sure that we have these radical ideas still permeating mm-hmm. the, the community. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's something we'll ever lose. And I yeah. think that one of the great things about having both sets is that you can include more people mm. with those, those more commercial books that you're, you're going to get a wider swath of readers, yeah. which is what we want. If we don't convince those readers that there's value here, yeah, then there is a very real risk that we're going to lose even that smaller stuff because you need resources to go to the artists. And mm-hmm. if you can't get it for, for the bigger, then it's going to trickle down and you're going to lose it for that smaller group too. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of value in, in trying to broaden the readership. Mm knowing that you're always going to have people putting together zines and the comics and and all of that. So I don't think that'll ever be lost. I think Mm. that the people who want that sense of excitement and that sense of um, exclusivity, I think they're always going to have an outlet for that, which is great. The comics can be truly for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm. really amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I mean, and, you know, again, to come back to what speaks to my soul, you know, my daughter is all in on the um, Raina Kool-Aid, you know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have like a piece of her art right right behind me. Um, and yet, you know, we were at um, Cartoon Crossroads in Columbus last weekend mm-hmm. um, and she um, she met Alexis Fajardo, who does Kid Beowulf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he's a Latinx creator who um, just is like really cool spinning on this on these old stories, you know, and just to see that comics are not only the means of my daughter to like make sense of a, a, a fairly monocultural, <laughs> um, you know, block of like what, what life is, mm-hmm. but also uh, like her access to all these like very different kinds of stories, you know, um, from Jin Yang or from whoever, you know, like is also just like really, really um, warms my heart. And so I love what you're saying about this way that, that, you know, I think that, every medium is going to have these multiple voices that mm-hmm. we can, you know, we can signal boost, you know, um, throughout. So that's, that's just, that's just nice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it speaks to the strength of, of comics and graphic novels, truly mm-hmm. to, to be able to, to walk into your library, to walk into a comic book store and see the the variety of literature that's out there and i know there's some people who bristle against calling it literature but right. <laughs> but it, it truly does come in all forms and and i think that it's going to continue to evolve and we're going to continue to see just some really amazing stuff coming out yes. i mean i feel like we are in this new age right now where yeah. it's it's not what we've seen in the past but in a good way and absolutely and so, yeah it's really exciting to to watch that continue to grow well, I'm thankful for your work on the front lines and, and as a leader in that, Aaliyah. It's, it's really great yeah, to, thank you. to talk to you about doing that. You're great stuff with your students. <laughs> so we'll take a break um, and then we'll come back and talk about um, uh, uh, Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me, okay? All right. <laughs> All right. 
so we, in addition to talking about um, comics and graphic novels and libraries with Leah, I really wanted to, 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 you know, talk about a comic book with you. And um, I'm really excited that this wound up on both of our reading lists because I've been feeling like overdue to talk about it. And the timing is impeccable because just last night, or I think it was maybe last night or the night before at New York Comic Con, um, they announced Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me won a Harvey Award for, I think, the kids and youth. um, Yep, best kids and young adult. It's fantastic, Um, which is just... I think recognition that it will keep getting and um, because it, and it certainly do. Um, so um, I guess maybe a little bit of background and um, I'm curious about how you've encountered this book and kind of, um, you know, ways that maybe as a, as a, as a librarian or just a, a cognizant comics reader, you know, you started to see it first appearing and being promoted, but um yeah, Mariko Tamaki is, is the writer and Rosemary Valero O'Connell in, I think what is kind of, I mean, um, as a, as an artist, um, O'Connell, Valero O'Connell has been around a little bit, but this is, I think, a sort of the big, like, debut splash. I don't know what it is. It's, <laughs> it really is um, putting this very, very beautiful art out there. Um, so how, how did you first start to see or hear about Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me? And what were your initial impressions? Yeah, so I first heard about it because over the years, I have become this intense uh, Mariko Tamaki fan. Mm -hmm. He has put out book after book of just impeccable Mm. writing and Mm -hmm. amazing storytelling. And so she's been someone who's been on my radar for a while. Yeah. And so when I heard about this project, there was no question of whether or not I was going to, to pick it up. It was <laughs> how quickly can I get it in my hands? Right. <laughs> uh, so it, it was inevitable that I was going to read this. Um, yeah. But I think also what this had going for it was that librarians uh, do look at, at titles ahead of time. So mm-hmm. we have, uh, depending on what library you work at, either Follett or uh, Baker and Taylor, and so we mm-hmm. use these to to look at books we should buy for our libraries. And yeah. a lot of the journals that exist for librarians to read reviews gave this title starred reviews. In fact, I think the only one that didn't was School Library Journal. I think they're a little <laughs> embarrassed by that at this point. Um, <laughs> but it was popping up on reviewers' radars. And that's mm-hmm. really how I hear a lot of about titles mm-hmm. uh, is is who in the library industry is is recognizing uh, books and so mm-hmm. it was one that again before it came out I was familiar with because of that yeah yeah um this one summer um was a revelation you know mm-hmm. and I think in terms of um what the the cousins Tamaki really um did as storytellers but also just how profoundly that spoke to a certain audience that I think was probably um, neglected at the time, but is really like a central comic graphic novel demographic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, Mariko Tamaki writing and, and comics work has been really groundbreaking. I think really super important, you know, from what, what she was doing with Hulk, you know, to, yeah. <laughs> to, um, to stuff like this, which is really fantastic to even, the Harley Quinn book um, that recently came out. Um, right. And and yeah. those all have this really amazing 
thread going through all of them. And it's not just the quality of her writing. Mm-hmm. She knows how to tap into the adolescent experience. Mm-hmm. Unlike any other writer I've ever seen. Like mm-hmm. She is able to capture feelings and mm. moments in such a way that if you're a teen, I think it's speaking to you because she gets you and she sees you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're an adult, it's speaking to you because it's bringing you back to that point. You're remembering yes. what it's like to be in that, in that space, which a lot of adults do forget the older. Yeah. Are. And so she has this amazing ability to speak to both teens and adults in a way that resonates with both. Yes but gives slightly different experiences. Yeah. Yes. She, she is just, she, I don't think she gets enough credit. And I know she does get a fair right. amount, Right. but I don't think we understand just what she's doing for writing in, yeah. in general. Well, I think as critics and scholars and so on, we'll take years unpacking the work, you know, like mm-hmm. as any great artist, um, well, we have the sort of the body of the work and the, the, the splash it makes culturally and then we have some time to you know (laughs) takes us way longer to get things into publication and presentation but um doing analysis of of this work um yeah and and i had a chance to meet her not too long ago actually a couple of weeks ago she you know she's a a, a around you know so she was at a she had an appearance at a a comic shop in oakland um and she was just also fantastically nice, you know, the kind of like meet your heroes and not be disappointed kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I actually, what you were saying about that resonance with adolescents, but also indeed with adults and the adolescents within us, like I felt that reading Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. Um, So much identification with the kinds of feelings that are somehow like so evocatively done. And and it's not just to me writing, it's, it's actually like the way that Tamaki and, you know, co-creators know how to utilize the comics medium to do that, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just totally fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and one of the things that I really loved about uh, Laura Dean in particular mm-hmm. is I love that Tamaki and, and whomever it is she's working with, they mm-hmm. have moved past setting these stories up as a way to have their characters come out. Mm, yeah Mm. her books and that's a very important experience for Mm -hmm. for those who are lgbtq Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean that that is a big thing Um, but i think what she's doing is this really amazing work towards normalizing it towards look this is no different than anyone realizing Mm. who they're attracted to and so let's not focus on that let's Mm. really make this a story about them being teens right and I think that that is such an amazing thing for representation, for showing kids who are living this experience that right. you're no different than that teen over there right. um, who has a different uh, sexuality, has a different mm-hmm. gender identification, mm-hmm. what have you. I really love that they tap into just how normal mm-hmm. that experience is. That's so powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel similarly about... Um, like spinning and bloom. And although those did explore the coming out moments, I think they were very much, yes, like you, as you were saying, normalized and not only normalized, but like it's complicated, you know, it's not just that journey to the arrival of coming out to yourself or to, to your community. It's like, then you live the mm-hmm. ups and downs and the heartbreak and the, the joy and exuberance of, of romance, you know? And, 
um, makes it, um, I think the different dimensions of, um, identification and representation for, for, for young folks, um, for queer folks. That's, it's really, um, yeah, really, really powerful, really wonderful. It reminds me of what I think when I first read Gene Yang's American Born Chinese made it feel so revelatory. Like I had read plenty of what felt like sort of like diversity service stories about immigrant Asian kids. Yes. And for him to be really exploring the complexity actually of diasporic communities where there's even this sort of self-rejection and things like that. Like now we're getting to the real stuff, you know? <laughs> and, right, right. and I wondered the, to the extent to which this book is really uh, doing that as well in terms of like, queer love and romance. Right. And I think too, uh, going back to, to Gene Yang's American mm. Born Chinese, mm-hmm. I think that a title like that opened up some room for a title like Laura Dean for mm. a title mm. like Stargazing by Jen Yang. Yeah. Um, you know, where they're able to tell these stories about complex issues. Yeah. But, and again, where the, the shock and awe of it isn't that these are marginalized people. Right. It's the complexity of the emotion they're going through and the connections they're making with others. Um, so, again, it's making it about their human condition, but recognizing that they are uh, different than you know, the, the stereotypical white teen or, right. or what have you, you know, they're not the majority and yeah. that does impact their experience, but that's not always the express focus. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, 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 I think that, um, my, my feeling of the whole thing and, and just, um, how wonderful it is, um, really matches what you're just describing. Maybe, maybe we should uh, give a little Plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, people don't know what this book is about by now. <laughs> right. Well, They're behind yeah, the times, but yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, if, in case you don't, um, uh, our, our main character is Freddie. Um, and she is a Berkeley teen who is in a relationship and then not in a relationship <laughs> with Laura Dean, as indicated multiple by, times. by the, multiple, many times, as indicated by the title. Um, and Freddie is really, um, agonized by Laura Dean's very like mercurial and, and sometimes very selfish ways of being a partner and yet is struggling as I think so many of us can identify with, with actually breaking it off, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and meanwhile has a friend community who I just, just beautifully crafted characters like, you know, Tamaki's ability and, and, and co-creators with just a word and really Valero O'Connell's amazing, um, gesture work and, and, you know, um, sense of dynamic with, with the art to create these characterizations. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. Freddie's community, um, her best friend doodle, um, and then, uh, um, friends, buddy and Eric. And it, it, it has, you know, hanging around a lot of Berkeley youth, <laughs> a lot of, it, 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 there's a, a reality to it. Um, there's something very specific in it as well as something quite universal. Um, anyway, they, um, they are, you know, there for her and then also experience some of the, um, sense of, of maybe betrayal or, 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 or neglect that, um, make Freddie, um, uh, make up Freddie's kind of struggle through, through this relationship and, and her finding her own, um, her own moorings, her own sense of who she is and, and what she wants. Um, but yeah, as, as you said, just so much of the, the complexity and I feel like the subtle struggles and, and also the, the great, um, empathy and and care that the characters have make them immediately very, very winsome. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 
and I think looking at the the artwork, I, mm. I think Rosemary Valero O'Connell mm. cannot be undersold on on how well she she did this artwork. But I think if there's mm. one panel that speaks really to to the theme of this entire book, mm. uh, I think that'd be on page forty two. Uh, mm. You see Freddie in a bowling alley, and the background is is the wallpaper uh, of, of this bowling alley. It's a universe. You see planets in the background, but yeah. I think it really speaks to how isolated she feels, how yeah. she doesn't seem to to find any comfort in her her experiences, yeah. how she's really in her own world and not mm-hmm. paying much attention to how her actions affect her friends. I mean, there's that really touching storyline with Doodle mm-hmm. um, regarding her own personal uh, struggles with mm-hmm. with her relationships that that Freddie misses out on because yeah. he's so all consumed with Laura. Yes. Yeah. So I think that panel so early on really captures it. Mm. She is surrounded by people and yet she feels so alone in, in what she's going through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that panel um, is stunning. And it comes amidst what seems like a mundane and and kind of sweet, but also very true moment that she's at the bowling alley with her family, you know, and they're mm-hmm. obviously a very caring family. Her, her younger brother Irving is being a, a younger, brother, you know, <laughs> parents are, her parents are pretty cool and very open. And, um, and yet that isolation that she feels um, in that moment, because she's, you can just read in her, all of the, the, the kind of, you know, Sturman drung about Laura Dean and, and mm-hmm. her status with that. Um, really beautifully encapsulated in that panel. I love that. I will take a picture of it and reproduce it in the show notes for folks who are wondering what we're talking about. But also it's, it. I agree with you. I think it's really pivotal because also she's about to meet another character who is really crucial mm-hmm. to her process as well, you know, who becomes yeah. a, um, a wonderful um, kind of, kind of mirror for her of some possibilities. Uh, maybe. A, I, mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked how this, this new friend, um, mm-hmm. Is it Vi? I think or, so. Or, yeah. 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 Uh, she stays a friend. Yes. Which you don't always see in these stories. Again, right. people tend to, to push romance right. on every character pairing that, that they can. And I remember getting to the end of the story and just being so pleasantly surprised that, mm. you no, know, that, that was truly just a friend. And that was someone mm-hmm. who had lived a similar experience and who was right. going to help her get through it. Right. And I think having that, that peer uh, relationship where it was kind of a mentorship. Yeah. I think that's so important for, for people to see that, you know, yeah. even if you feel alone, yeah, there are people who know. Yeah. 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 Had to be a, like, it's funny. They make such a big deal. She's 18. So old, <laughs> but there is a, there, there is a little bit of an, it gets better feeling, right. That mm-hmm. she's proximate enough to her age, but, but also is just in a different, you know, has sort of crossed through that post high school threshold into like, things will be all right. You know, yeah. um, you, you can, you, you'll, you'll be all right on out the other side of the box of this relationship that you feel like so, um, uh, I don't know. So, so intoxicated in inside, mm-hmm. there's more out there. No, I, I, I like that. And I think also that the climactic emotional moment of the book, which, mm-hmm. you know, to me is that that moment with doodle is a, is a moment with a friend, right? That yeah. this book that's 
clearly about romance is not contingent on further romance to mm-hmm. to sort of grow as a human, you know, or a, right. or a rebound relationship or something. And I think that's the beauty of this. I mean, Laura's, Laura Dean's name is in the title. It, yeah. This book would seem like this is going to be about her. Yes. And yet they pull that, that bait and switch on you almost like, yes, she's mm-hmm. there. And yes, she is this catalyst for these behaviors and these actions. Mm-hmm. But the heart of the story, besides being about Freddie's journey, is about Freddie's relationships with her friends, with her family. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much not about Laura Dean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I want to come back to Laura Dean a little bit later because I, I have some questions about that character um, and just your thoughts on it. But I, I think something else in, in thinking about Freddie is it's fascinating to me how, and I think this is actually a gift of fiction, but also a, a, in a particular way, a gift of comics, the way that like, who Freddie is and is becoming is, is, um, is let's say brought about by like all these relationships around her, you know, indeed Laura, but, but also doodle and her friendships and, and her family. Um, I, I, there's this thing, there's this thing that as I was reading it, I don't know that I got, and I wondered if you had some insight on it, which is that she has a, uh, Hey, will hey. you? Yes. Sorry. I think I, my connection must've broke. <laughs> yeah, I, I lost you. I don't know if it was you, but I did lose you for a little bit. Okay, sorry about that. I somehow, <laughs> thankfully, Zoom brought me back. Um, and it's still recording. Oh, that was crazy. I've never experienced that. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Okay, let me try rebooting, resetting my, what I was, uh, my, my diatribe here. But <laughs> I, 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 um, there was, I think there's a part of the story that I was just, I, I don't know that I understood fully. And I wondered if you had some insights on it, which was, you know, I see um, Freddie becoming who she is kind of in relation to all these other characters, but she has this um, hobby, I'm not sure what it, of, of the, um, the stuffed animals that she's sort of like recombining in different ways. And they, and they speak, right? They, they, um, they talk to her, talk back to her. And I don't know, do you have some, some clue to, to what that's about or what role that's supposed to play in the story for us? So I think that that, actually does speak to her identity building. I really feel (laughs) that she doesn't know all of the pieces of what makes her who she is. How She can feel a little bit like Frankenstein's monster where (laughs) she's made up of her relationship with Laura, her relationship with Doodle, but who is she? And so I think that it's this way of her having a dialogue with herself (laughs) where she's trying out these different pieces together to see does this fit and, and how do these different parts come together to, to make a, in this case, creature whole, but how did she make <laughs> herself whole? And there's this really great panel um, or page rather, uh, or is it 278? Okay. Where she is talking to Laura Dean about the relationship and, and how she is realizing that it needs to come to an end. Mm-hmm. And all you see of Freddie are pieces mm. Mm. You see her hands, you see her head, you see part of her torso, but right. you don't see the full part of her. And so I think that there's some parallel there between mm. the pieces of the the stuffed animals that she's pulling apart and putting together again mm. and her own reconstruction of herself. Like, yeah. who am I without this relationship and what can I be and what's going to come to me next to make me more whole? Um, so mm. that was the connection that I saw there. But I really mm. think she just needed that way to talk to herself, but in a yeah. way that was removed because she, again, 
doesn't feel like other people get her. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Wow. We're done. That, that was beautiful. <laughs> no, thank you. Let me go warm, warm myself on that insight for a while. Um, no, I, yeah. As you were, as you were saying, I, I'm thinking about when those stuffed animals start talking and I think they start with a little bit of talk back, like they're kind of snarky, you know? Yes, yes. And, and, and so the ways that they are like a, a kind of echo of voice or a, a part of the identity formation to externalize, you know, this kind of voice inside as she's putting herself together. Um, right. Because what she needs to hear isn't pleasant. Yes. That, that's mm. part of, of the growing up experience that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're going to hear a lot of things that challenge and that push and that just mm. feel in that moment awful and 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 like they are ripping us apart you know mm. I, I hate to sound all dramatic but that's that's the experience that's what you feel like right <laughs> and and i think yeah. that that's what they're meant to echo yeah 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 and and that, so that makes me think about you know i i walk away from the book and in the forefront of my mind is of course laura dean is is v or vi um is doodle but then there's there's these stuffed animals and then there's the um you know, there's the uh, fortune teller. And then there's, of course, the the audience of the sort of typed caption boxes, which is mm-hmm. the advice columnist, um, Anna Weiss, I think is 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 their name that that um, Freddie is writing to and then sort of like composing. And, and that's like an, yet another, I don't know, register or another audience for her self-composition work mm-hmm. that's going on throughout this. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. Like, I, I wondered if we would ever hear back from Anna Weiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, um, spoiler, <laughs> we do get a reply I thought was really interesting. Just, um, just that there is uh, some feedback from these, I don't know, maybe external authorities or whatever. Um, adult. I that was a brilliant, brilliant use of storytelling. So here's what I loved about Anna Weiss. I feel like it started out as very self-contained and this was obviously someone Freddie was talking to. Right. And when you get that response at the end, it felt like there was a shift. Like it was no longer mm. just Freddie, but it felt like that was advice for the reader as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I could see how this was used to to make that extra connection to kind of break the fourth wall reach out through the pages mm. and and kind of say you as the reader don't mm. have to feel alone like you can also know that that there mm. is a world out there for you where you're going to have love and heartbreak and all of these experiences and you're going to get through that mm. and so i thought that was a brilliant way of doing that that mm. you're seeing this character recognize not just freddie but the reader itself yeah 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 you know one of the things that makes me think about is um i think something that tamaki is really good at is is showing how is not being moralistic about forms of expression or communication that you know <laughs> you know there's not like a character who's just like terrible <laughs> and in the same way i think a lot of times when um technology or social media or the fact that kids communicate so much via technology um, is put into a comic book. It's even, it's either shown as like this terrible thing that's making them all dehumanized, you know, Mm -hmm. or it's just like the cool thing that, you know, we're just trying to appropriate for our storytelling. But I feel like in a very organic way um, and in a way that's very real for young people, 
young people's lives, like the cell phone and, and the, the sort of communication that you can, the contact you can have via, you know, just being able to write to an advice columnist like this Mm -hmm. um, is interwoven into the ups and downs of Freddie's experience. You know, I think about the ways that like text messages are part of how Laura Dean does the thing that Laura Dean does to <laughs> Freddie, you know? Yeah. Um, and yet it's also, it, it, it also is sort of the, a blessing and a curse as Doodle starts to text message. Um, become it, It's a way of revealing and a way of hiding. It's a way of manipulating and a way of being vulnerable and open. So it's right. like- it, it goes back to that complexity and how, yeah. as you said, you know, there's no one who's just good or none who's just bad. There's, right. There are multiple facets to, to everything, not just the people, but right. the, the tools we use to communicate with each other. Yeah. And so I like that it embraces that, that it, there are no clear good guys and bad yeah. guys. I mean, I think we're meant to dislike Laura Dean, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, even she's this teenager who yeah. is still in the midst of figuring out who she is and maybe she'll grow out of it. Maybe she won't, but right. you know, they're all human. And right. you, you can see that, you know, Laura Dean has some issues. <laughs> yes. And and so I feel like it was really hard for me to, to completely villainize her because yeah. You you wonder, I wondered at least, like what caused her to be that way, even though she wasn't, again, the real focus. Mm. You know, there's there's this deeper level of of history here that we may mm. never get, but mm. it's just fascinating to to see how human they are. And that's what's amazing about them. Mm. Is that mm. you know there's that story. Yeah, yeah. And that actually comes to the question I wanted to to ask you about Laura Dean, because you know, I found myself as I was reading it, you know, a little bit of Paul confession hour here, <laughs> relating a lot to my own sort of first, you know, high school romantic relationship mm-hmm. and just feeling in a similar way, like very like, I can't pull myself away and yet I cannot, you know, and yet this is not right, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling like I needed to almost make that person, um, like they, they're just so powerful and I need to detach myself from that power. Mm-hmm. But I found myself, um, you know, within, within a, a year or two, really going, you know, thinking to myself, how had I maybe um, unfairly constructed that other person who, mm-hmm. I, who I cared about, but because, you know, it was really my own feelings that made her, her have such power. Yeah. And, and so I needed to have a process of my own, you know, sort of, in 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 a in whatever contact I had with them, but also it within myself, remind myself this is just a a human being, you know, like mm-hmm. like we all have issues, and 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 she she has issues, and she's also those things that are wonderful about her as a human being are are true, and and I guess I felt a little bit like I identified with how much power Laura Dean had, um, and how she exercised it mm-hmm. with Freddie. Um, but I, I started to think is, you know, am I dehumanizing Laura Dean in a way, you know, in, in, in sort of attributing to her, wow, she's really powerful. And wow, this is really dangerous. Like, and Freddie needs to back out of this. I don't know that I got a glimpse of like, like, I agree with you. Like I didn't feel a lot of sympathy for her until kind of in retrospect. And, and so there, and, and I don't know, there was a scene where we were like meant to go, oh, Okay. Like, I understand where she's coming from or why she's the way she is. Um, so I, I guess I just didn't know what to make of my own feelings about that character. Um, 
or how how the creators rendered her. Yeah, I, I think she's this really emblematic uh, character. She is the idea that so many of us have of of what a good relationship should be, even though mm. most of us as teens don't know <laughs> what, <laughs> right. what that actually is. We, we Sometimes as adults. <laughs> right, right. Again, it, it goes back to that human nature of things, but we, <laughs> we tend to uh, seek out adventure and excitement whether or not that's healthy for us. And, mm. and we don't always look at what that means and, and where that adventure and excitement is coming from. And so, mm. again, I, I couldn't help mm. when I'm reading this, but to wonder, like, what is Laura Dean's, you know, story? Like, why mm. is she presenting this way? And, and how much of Freddie's, you know, an interpretation and vision of her is is accurate? You know, how much mm. of this is her perspective? Right. So maybe there are things that we're not seeing about Laura Dean. And so right, I right. think this, this graphic novel is so layered. There are mm-hmm. so many ways that you can look at the different relationships here and, and mm. wonder, you know, I, I think Freddie, because she's constructing her sense of self still, I'm wondering how right. much she's constructing uh, the narrative surrounding mm. Laura Dean. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is, is her point of view really the most reliable and yeah. it's what we have. And so that's what we we take as as the word here. But mm, um, mm, and again, mm. I think Lordine is you know she's not a decent person, mm, um, mm, but she's mm. young and she can grow out of that. And so I wonder, uh, you know, how much how much is that truly her, hmm. and how much of that is is Freddie's perspective? Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Yeah, you're. I mean, what you're saying is making me want to go back and look at all the ways that. Um, you know, even the ways that Valero O'Connell frames Laura Dean in these moments. I mean, even the cover, we have this like, like really killer jacket <laughs> that yeah. she's wearing, right? And 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 yet we don't see her face, right? And there's all these moments where we capture her, and it's um, in a way that I think is very like wonderfully manga inflected. Like we see like a sliver of Laura Dean as she's like be- being like very intimately close with another person, or being like very um like you know i don't i don't know the right word for it but like super cool she's just like very like attractive you know and, yes. and and so i wonder how much of that is sort of the perception is meant to be the perception through freddie's eyes right, right. of the construction of her um, right yeah she has this very throughout this very uh 1950s almost greasy yes. look like she yeah, is framed yeah. in this very cool and separate way and there are a lot of panels that that show her throughout alone or Mm. as you said just a sliver of her so she she is very intentionally i think drawn to to be removed from Mm. that main set of characters and so we we don't have the full glimpse of her right Um, so not that I am encouraging a, a follow-up because I think that this is very powerful and stands on mm-hmm. its own, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there ever a story about Laura Dean, uh, I, I think that this this creator pair um, right. could do some really fascinating stuff with that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And agree. Like, I think for, you know, we've, we've now spent too much energy and time on Laura Dean. <laughs> we've, we've been sucked into the trap, but, but indeed, like, I think this book... <laughs> is supposed to leave her with that power, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that sort of mystery um, because it's about Freddie, as you said, from the beginning, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's the, it's purportedly Laura Dean, but it really is about Freddie and her process um, and untangling from the Laura Deanness of it all. 
<laughs> which we should probably do as well, <laughs> untangle ourselves from that. Um, I wonder if you had um, any thoughts about, um, uh, you know, uh, other characters or other sort of movements in the story that, that struck you or surprised you or, um, you know, were, uh, you know, felt really important to what this story was doing. Yeah, I mean, I I think the second most powerful thing, once you look past uh, Freddie and, and identity and all of that, I think mm-hmm. really is the friend base. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is Doodle uh, being there for her and whether or not Freddie's going to be able to return that favor when Doodle actually needs that, yeah. that friendship returned mm-hmm. because she gets into this really heavy moment that is... Mm-hmm. It's hard to navigate as a person, but as a teenager going through that experience, it's just this really heavy thing. Um, Or to even see Eric and Buddy in their relationship. And again, where the focus is just on how much they love each other. And yet you see that moment where, um, who is it? Eric wants Mm. to invite Buddy to his his grandma's birthday party, but you're still seeing that little bit of of uh resistance from, yeah. from family and that yeah, backwards yeah. way of thinking that yeah. you know, they would not recognize that relationship so it's really powerful the way you see those friends come together and how mm. you see that they have their own lives that don't center around freddie yeah yeah and and how she kind of responds to that so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think though that doodle um is is a very fascinating character who mm. I, again, would would love to see more of her, but mm-hmm. she, she was in just the right amount to to really frame mm. who Freddie is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you on the um, dosage and the pacing of of Doodle because actually, you know, throughout the book, which moves very quickly, you know, it again manga like has this way of like the pages just fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much you know worth coming back to. Doodle changes a lot, you know, I think that, and, 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 and so that feeling of like something has happened that has shifted, that was imperceptible because like Freddie, we were so wrapped up in Freddie and so wrapped up in Laura Dean. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have neglected. And, and I love the way that in a very um, evocative way, the creators insert all these like doodle going, Hey, what, you know, pay attention to me, you know, like, but it's in the midst of another scene. And so, so the ways that Freddie overlooks, doodle and their friendship um this is very believable yeah and it can be something as small as i mean again it was just so brilliantly crafted the story it it Mm. could be something so small as doodle telling a joke to freddie and be like hey i just told you this joke laughing and and so that that's real life though that's how it happens as Mm -hmm. you said it's it's imperceptible it's these small moments that don't seem like much in the moment but Mm -hmm. but they add up and then they lead to you know these secret relationships yeah yeah that just come out of nowhere seemingly but didn't yeah 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 and then we really see um doodle again you know sort of like Mm -hmm. they're you know doodles in the periphery and then returns again to, to our attention. I'm, I, I'm looking at page 118 and 119, I think is one of those moments when in the action, when we are similarly preoccupied with Freddie and Freddie's concerns that doodle, we get this like um, these two pages where it's like for a moment and all too short a moment, like mm-hmm. doodle takes front and center and we just see the emotions pass over her face as, you know, it's really subtext of 
her feeling uh, really neglected and conflicted about about Freddie. And then, uh, you know, I, I just love also so much again, and I kind of mentioned this before, but that there are so many scenes between Freddie and Laura Dean where they're supposed to be being intimate, but it feels really fleeting. Mm-hmm. It's all about the before and the after sort of, but mm-hmm. the climactic moment, um, you know, roughly page 250, you know, and on mm-hmm. is really between a kind of um, physical intimacy of the non-romantic, but deeply, you know, deeply um, loving and and close kind between Doodle and uh, and Freddie as as uh, Freddie's trying to to comfort Doodle through what yeah. uh, what mean, she's been through. Two fifty four and two fifty five are just absolutely stunning and moving, and I mm-hmm. love how that perspective shifts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see it from both sides Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because this is the first moment where it feels like this relationship is truly going both ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a perspective shifts, even sort of camera wise. Right. Yeah. 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 We sort of see through one of their eyes and then the other, Um, especially those two pages, right. Where it does Mm -hmm. the full sort of 360. Oh, that's, Mm -hmm. that's great. Um, it was doing that to me, but I didn't know how until you just said that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts about this book? I mean, we, we, I'm, we could go on for many more hours, yes. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Now, like you said, uh, there, there's a lot to unpack. And, yeah. and that's why I think we need to pay more attention to graphic novels. I know this just mm. went to Harvey. Yeah. But... I'm really excited for the day when when graphic novels start winning other literacy and literature awards mm-hmm. rather um, because these characters are so human because there is, is so much relationship building and mm-hmm. it, it's a beautiful story with or without the illustrations, but mm-hmm. you would not get the story without both. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think we need to elevate graphic novels more and, and, mm-hmm. and hold them purposefully as separate. Yeah, um, yeah which I know is contradictory to what I just said. I, I think that they <laughs> they need to be both. They need to be recognized as great in and of themselves, but also as great stories. And yeah, and yeah these these characters were amazing. The artwork was just stunning. I really mm-hmm. love the the simple color palette. Yes, yeah. Where you get the white, the grays, the the bubble come pink, and it right. it feels like it's trying to tap into that youth and that naivete mm, mm. Uh, that that the characters have, and mm. you know it it really speaks to like they're not fully grown yet; they're still mm. figuring things out, mm. but they're having these really heavy adult moments, and yeah. so there's that that kind of fight between mm. youth and adulthood that you're mm. seeing play out in the pages and mm. it's just such it, it's a powerful story so yes powerful. yeah 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 that pink works on so many <laughs> pink pink is amazing because it's the can be the most artificial color in the world and also the most sort of like you know i don't know look in any like orifice of your body I'm lifting my eyelid and there's pink you know Mm -hmm. there's that pink um but uh, no I totally agree with what you say um and one of the things I'm thinking about and I think a privilege we have as librarians and and educators is to actually be able to do what what you and I just did with young people you know is to to read and uh, and and do that unpacking of why this thing hit me the way it did um and how it might be possible for us to not only identify with texts and find ourselves represented in texts, but also maybe to be, to be authors of them as well. And mm-hmm. I think that um, is an exciting thing that we get to do with, 
with young people and, and all kinds of people. Aliyah, it's been really fun. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's been really exciting talking about this and about graphic novels in general. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, this is the best. This is what it's all about. Um, so where can people find you? I think that that feels like a typical podcast question. <laughs> <laughs> but if they, they're interested in, in following your work and your, um, your perspectives. Yeah. Um, the best place, I think, for, for folks to find me, if you're not in the, the library world, I would be on Twitter. Uh, that's <laughs> where I do my random ramblings about <laughs> representation and graphic novels and, and such. Um, <laughs> my handle is at S-H-H-H. Yeah, Y-E-A-H. Um, <laughs> and that is very much an intentional play on librarianship. I love that. <laughs> in the library, though. Um, so I'm a little bit disappointed in myself for going that route, but um, <laughs> but you can also follow uh, the graphic novel and comics roundtable mm. at at Lib Comics uh, C O M I X, okay. and that is on Facebook and Twitter. I don't think we have an Instagram, um, but there's a lot of great work out there that I'm connected to either directly or tangentially. That's awesome. All right, we'll we'll drop those in the show notes as well. Aaliyah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>